On Wealth Track, a new world order requires a major overhaul of portfolios. The question is whether portfolios are structured for that 3% or higher secular inflation. I would argue they're not, and I would argue that presents tremendous investment opportunities. So says noted strategist and asset allocator Richard Bernstein. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Is your portfolio out of date for the new world order? Are you holding the winners of yesteryear instead of the winners of future years? Well, you probably are, according to this week's guest, a noted investment strategist known for his macro analysis and thematic investing. He is Richard Bernstein, Chief Executive and Chief Investment Officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors, which he founded in 2009. The firm now oversees or advises nearly $16 billion in assets, largely in multi-asset allocation strategies for financial advisors using ETFs, and also including two mutual funds under the Eaton Vance name. RBA has been recognized as one of the top 10 fastest-growing investment firms specializing in asset allocation portfolio solutions. In his previous life as Merrill Lynch's longtime chief investment strategist, he was inducted into the highly selective Institutional Investors Hall of Fame for his 18-year tenure on its prestigious All-America research team. We have been delighted to have Rich as a WealthTrack regular since our launch in 2005. I asked him to describe the new world order, which requires a revamp of our portfolios. So, Consuelo, I think that investors have gotten very used over the last 30 years. They've gotten used to increasing globalization. And I think the new world order is that we should expect globalization to contract, right? I don't think that people understand that globalization historically has been like an accordion. It's expanded and contracted and expanded and contracted. And I think the accordion has, has been contracting. And we've seen that through the supply disruptions. We've seen that through the unfortunate war that's going on in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, all these type of things are, are signs that globalization is contracting. I think for investors, the important takeaway from that is that we should start expecting more secular inflation rather than less. Not, not the inflation numbers we're seeing right now, but what's inflation going to be over the next three, five, seven, ten 10 years? Probably more than people are expecting right now rather than less. And when you're talking about an accordion, how long does the contraction uh, last? Are these very long-term trends? Yeah, I think they probably are, Consuelo. Uh -huh. And I think, or, or at least longer than people expect, is probably a, an educated way to say it. Because, you know, to say something like, oh, it's going to last 24 and a half years, I mean, like, who really knows? Right. But, but I think it's going to last longer than people expect. And I think, you know, just realistically, um, you know, even if, I don't think anybody expects that Russia and Ukraine will be singing kumbaya in the near future and that we're going back to the pre-pandemic world of globalization. That's pretty clear that's not going to happen. And one of the things that when you and I talked earlier, uh, you know, you talked about what globalization meant and it was importing deflation. Explain what globalization did for us and what reversing it is going to mean. So globalization did exactly what the textbook said it was going to do. It's, it's remarkable. And what happened was that production moved to where it was most efficient. 
And now we could argue whether all countries were competing fairly or not. That's a story for another day. But in generalities, production moved to where it was most efficient. And what that means in English is that production kept shifting to lower cost producers. And so as you had lower cost producers, prices for goods kept going down. Easy way to think about it is lots more competition. The more competition you have, the more prices are likely to go down. And, and that's exactly what happened. And so for a very long time, what you saw was that imp, uh, import prices into the United States were rising more gradually than our headline CPI. Mm -hmm. So what that meant was that imports were constantly dragging down the CPI. In other words, the, the, the way people refer to it was the United States was importing deflation. Right. And the unfortunate reality today is that that has changed. That as globalization has begun to shrink because of the supply disruptions, because of the war, everything else is going on, what's happening is the United States is importing inflation, which means that import prices are rising faster than our CPI. Now, the unfortunate part of that even further is that even when you exclude oil and petroleum and things like that, what you find is the core import prices are rising faster than our core CPI. So this is happening to a broad range of industries. And one of the reasons why we think the inflation backdrop is, is significantly shifting. But Rich, I'm just thinking it, it really came to the fore because of COVID and the supply disruptions. And, it, and again, it certainly is coming to the fore again because of Russia's war uh, in Ukraine. So the, those were, you know, hopefully shorter term events. I mean, they lasted, mm -hmm. you know, the pandemic lasted for over two years. God knows how long this horrible war is going to last. Is it possible that we can go once these events are over, that we can go back? Or, or has there, have there been fundamental changes that make it not advantageous to keep, you know, importing goods from overseas and, and not you know, do manufacturing here? Right. An important question, obviously. And, and I think here's the way to think about it. The, the supply disruptions, which we all now know all too well, right. have lasted longer than the 1973-74 and 1979 oil embargoes combined. Wow. Combined. This is a major economic event that people, for some reason, think is like not meaningful. Um, and so we know with 73, 74 and 1979 that it changed the way companies thought about pricing. It changed the way labor thought about wages. And guess what's happening? And all the surveys show that companies have changed the way they think of pricing. Labor markets are historically tight. We're seeing wage rates go up and we're seeing the shift of power on the margin head towards labor. Um, this is exactly what should happen from, a, from an event of this magnitude. And, and so it doesn't mean, and I, I don't want to put, I don't want to get people too scared by this mm -hmm. because it, it doesn't mean we're going to have eight, nine and 10% inflation forever. But what it means is that secular inflation, long-term inflation, which most forecasts right now are for between two and 3% is likely to be higher than 3%. That's not a huge statement. It's just that people are so used to it being below 2% right. for so long. The question is whether portfolios are structured for that 3% or higher secular inflation. I would argue they're not, and I would argue that presents tremendous investment opportunities. What difference does that make to, uh, to corporate profits, for instance, 
uh, to, to, to the way that you know, people conduct their businesses, to the things that we buy. What happens, Consuelo, is that as inflation builds up, businesses, investors, everybody begins to shorten their timeframes. And they shorten their timeframes because there's a need for cash flows to keep up with inflation. Mm -hmm. When you have no inflation or you have disinflation or deflation, nobody cares about these issues. As you have inflation, it becomes more and more important. So let's, let's take a, a classic example for, um, for, let's say a college endowment. Let's do something like that. So, right, so college endowments right now, we know have done very well. We know they have huge investments in venture capital and very long time horizon investments. Right. But we also know the cost of higher education goes up more rapidly than the cost in the overall economy. So if we're heading towards an environment where there's greater need for near-term cash flows because there's greater need be to meet prices and obligations to pay for things, that means that your investments have to return a lot now as opposed to being somewhere out in the future. That's a huge change for investors. Individuals, portfolios are largely on long-duration bonds. That doesn't work anymore. You need shorter-duration bonds to keep up with higher rates of inflation and the higher need for cash flow. Everybody talked about duration, your interest mm -hmm. rate sensitivity in the bond markets, but you applied it to the stock markets as well. Talk to us about uh, the fact that right now, how most portfolios are positioned for a, you know, a deflationary kind of low interest rate environment. So explain those long duration uh, investments. I think most investors understand that you know, a 30-year zero-coupon bond has more interest rate risk than, say, a five-year coupon-bearing note, right? Because more of your return is pushed out into the future, and therefore, as interest rates change, the valuation of that long-term asset changes more dramatically. It's mm -hmm. just kind of simple math. When it comes to the equity market, people forget this. And the way to think about it is a stock with a PE of five. If you think about that PE very simplistically for a second, a PE of five equates today's price to five years of earnings. If you think about a stock with a PE of 30, it equates today's price to 30 years of earnings. Of course, it assumes no growth. I understand that, but bear with me on this one for right. a second. <laughs> so what happens is that when interest rates go down, the PE of 30 will outperform the PE of five, just as a 30-year zero outperforms a five-year note. When interest rates go up, however, the PE of five tends to outperform the PE of 30, just as the five-year note outperforms the 30-year zero. It's the exact same math in both cases. And so what's happened is, as people have talked about technology and innovation and disruption and all these sexy growth stories, what they've done is they've gone to stocks which have PEs of 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, which are very interest rate dependent. Mm -hmm. And these companies don't have the near-term earnings don't have the near-term cash flow to offset the negative effect of rising rates. It, it should be no surprise to anybody that, that the technology themes have been underperforming as interest rates have started to go up. That is exactly what should happen mm -hmm. in a normal environment. Here we are facing uh, inflation that is far above the Fed's target of 2% inflation. And if Paul Volcker were alive today, <laughs> Um, and and if, if he did what he had done 
in the late 70s, early 80s is basically he took, in your expression, a sledgehammer right. to inflation and um, boosted interest rates and basically murdered the economy, murdered Absolutely. the recovery. Um, so that's the way the Fed has in the past fought inflation that is at these levels. What do you expect from the Jerome Powell Fed? Right. So this Fed, we have described, for all of you out there who are Yosemite Sam fans, we have described uh, this Fed as being very lily-livered, um, <laughs> if, if you remember from the cartoon. And, right. and they seem hesitant to do anything. When you consider that as we sit here today, you and I, pre-meeting for the Fed, the Fed, the pre-March meeting, the Fed still today has the exact same monetary policy they had at the worst parts of the pandemic. We know the economy has changed dramatically. We know we have a very tight labor market. We know we have inflation, but the Fed has yet to change policy one bit. And they're basically saying, and then this, they may change this, of course, but they, they're basically hinting that they're going to raise short-term rates 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent. Given that inflation is so high right now, what the data shows is the Fed has never been this far behind inflation. This is almost the polar opposite right. of the Volcker Fed that you talked about, Consuelo, where the Fed got in front of inflation, they raised rates dramatically, and they took a sledgehammer to the economy big time. I mean, they just absolutely gave us a toe-curling recession. This Fed does not appear Volcker-esque in its, in, in its approach. Rather, the, to use the analogy, rather than using a sledgehammer, they seem to feel that they can use a chisel and kind of sculpt the economy a little bit. That's the same mistake feds in the 1960s and 1970s made, thinking that they could finesse inflation. But the Volcker Fed taught us, you can't do that. You mm -hmm. really have to think. So I think the probability of a recession, of, of a Fed-induced recession, we could have one by accident, but a Fed-induced recession is probably much lower than people think right now. Rich, Wall Street's projecting that the Fed is going to raise interest rates, you know, 25 basis points, um, maybe five or six times mm -hmm. uh, this year, which still gets the Fed funds rate, you know, up to a, you know, whopping, I mean, still under 2%. So what difference is that going to make, even if they do do what's expected, you know, these, these small little increments, uh, multiple increments um, in the next year? So, Consuelo, I think it's not so much the increments and, and where the Fed funds rate goes to. It's the Fed funds rate relative to longer-term bonds. Right. Right. And so what, what investors are very worried about right now, what Wall Street's very worried about right now, is that short-term interest rates rise above long-term interest rates, commonly called an inverted yield curve. Yes. And the reason that's so damaging to the economy is that when you have an inverted yield curve, lending tends to shut down because for banks, the cost of deposits at the short end of the curve are higher than their anticipated return of the loan at the longer end of the curve. And so they stop lending. It's just not profitable for banks to lend. And, um, and, and obviously lending is a, is a lifeblood of the economy to some extent. So that's what people are scared about. Now, one has to remember at the same time the Fed has talked about extricating themselves from the long end of the curve. Uh, most of your viewers are probably unaware, the Fed currently owns over 50% 
of the 10 to 20 year treasury market. Wow. They are the dominant owner of long-term bonds. So if they begin to sell those bonds, what you could see is the whole yield curve begin to shift up and prevent that inversion. I think the Fed would actually be very comfortable with that as opposed to a, you know, an inversion where short-term interest rates go above long-term interest rates. However, the street right now is very concerned that the yield curve is going to invert, which would shut down lending, which would uh, dramatically increase the chances of a recession. How concerned are you about that? Look, if, if the Fed is, the Fed has talked about being nimble, which I thought was a rather interesting word from a, such a, 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 <laughs> a plotting, a plotting entity. Right. Um, nimble. I kind of, you know, don't think of them. I think of them more as kind of a nearsighted rhinoceros than a nimble cheetah. But that's another story for another day. If they are going to try and be nimble, they will try to extricate themselves from the long end of the curve and they will try to prevent the curve from inverting. Um, we'll see what happens, but I, I think right now what's happening, that people are starting to forecast the forecasting tool. When the curve inverts, you still have plenty of time to restructure portfolios. You know, a year to a year and a half, typically. What's happening now is that people are trying to forecast that forecasting tool. Um, probably not a healthy exercise. You're saying that most of our portfolios are out of step with the new world order. Mm -hmm. They need updating. So what kind of updating do our portfolios need? If globalization is contracting, if inflation is rising or is going to be higher than it's been over the last you know, decade or more, what do we do? So Consuelo, you know, we all tend to speak in hyperbole, like one thing's good, the other thing's bad. And I, I, I don't want people to take away that this is an all or nothing proposition. Right. But I, I do think that um, investors are universally underweight pro-inflation assets. And by universally, I mean pensions, endowments, foundations, family offices, high net worth individuals, regular individuals. Everybody is underweight pro-inflation assets. And that made past tense a lot of sense relative to the secular disinflation that we were seeing. If we are entering a period of secular inflation, then you need pro-inflation assets. And, and when it's kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition that people are so underweight at a point in time where the economy, we would argue, is changing pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. So what are pro-inflation assets? In the equity market, it would be energy, materials, industrials, financials. Uh, in fixed income, you'd look at junk bonds, high yield bonds. You'd look at uh, commodities and commodity-related emerging markets, gold, and real assets. But whenever you talk about real assets right now, one has to be a little bit careful because we know that certain portions of the real estate market are overbuilt. Right. And we want to be a little careful about that. But in general, if we took all those things that I just mentioned, um, my guess you'd be hard-pressed to find any investor who is overweight them in total. And to us, that presents opportunities. So when I think of most of those assets, Rich, I think cyclical, short-term outperformance, mm -hmm. not long-term trends. Um, uh, am I wrong? So history says, Consuelo, that these cycles can last a long time. Okay. Um, you know, if you think about the last time that the energy sector valuations and growth prospects were better than the technology sectors, which is, which is actually true right now. The dividend yield on the energy sector is, is the highest in the S&P. And the five-year, keyword, projected earnings growth rate for energy is the highest of any sector. The last time anything like that happened 
energy outperformed technology stocks for a decade. So these things can last a, a pretty long time. If you look historically at the relationship between emerging markets and venture capital, they tend to run in 10 to 12 to 14 year cycles. We've just seen venture capital absolutely destroy emerging markets mm -hmm. in the last 10, 12, 14 years. If that were to reverse, I think a lot of people would be surprised. So I think we could find a situation here where this could be a long-term story. We have been saying that one of the big surprises could be that energy turns out, traditional dirty energy, turns out to be a long-term growth story, which I think would surprise uh, most investors. And Rich, so that's going to lead me to the one investment question. What do you think that we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? So Consuelo, I mentioned this very briefly, but I'll slow down a little on this one. I think it's something to do with the energy sector. Mm -hmm. And people are so underweight traditional carbon energy. And in some cases, I, I get it. It's, an, it's a kind of an ethical question. I understand that. But I'm just saying if, 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 you're, if that's not a, a predisposition, the traditional carbon energy sector right now has the highest dividend yield of any S&P 500 sector and has the highest long-term projected growth rate of any sector as well. In other words, the energy sector gives you value and growth. It ranks number one in both categories right now. That's so incredibly unusual that I can't believe that, that people aren't attracted to it in one form or another. And Rich, when you said it's not an all or nothing proposition, so mm -hmm. therefore when you're talking about allocating some of your portfolio to these inflation beneficiaries, how much are you talking about? I mean, when you consider how big tech is, mm -hmm. if you've got an S&P 500 index fund right now, tech and, right. and, and telecommunications. So I think one of the important things that, that you alluded to, Consuelo, was the weight of, of uh, technology and communications in the S&P. And if you go back to the technology bubble, it got up to about 40, 41, 42% of the S&P 500 was in tech and telecom. In 2000, right now. That was in, that was in 2000, March right. of 2000, right at the peak of the bubble. Um, that fell from 40 or 41% all the way down to about 16% wow. or 18% of the S&P, depending on how you measure it. Right now, at the peak, tech and telecom this cycle got to about 40 or 41% again. Mm -hmm. It's only down to the high 30s right now. So there could be a long way to go. I understand some people may not agree with that. But the way to think about this as an asset allocator is, do you have anything in your portfolio that one would categorize as a pro-inflation asset? I don't think you have to get too sexy on this one. I just think you have to have exposure to these pro-inflation assets. And that's what diversification is all about, right? People always tell me they have diversified portfolios, but what history shows very clearly is that investors are habitually under-diversified. Why? Because they don't have anything in the portfolio they don't like, <laughs> right? Because they think they have a view of the world and everything in the portfolio is geared to their view of the world. What if they're wrong? That's what diversification is all about. And my point simply is, look, I get that everybody may not agree with me on this, but diversification, true diversification would argue that you should have some allocation to pro-inflation assets. And right now, um, virtually nobody does. <laughs> Rich Bernstein, always so great to have you on Wealth Track and such an interesting conversation. So thank you so much for joining us again, Rich. Thanks, Consuelo. It was great being with you. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At the close of every Wealth Talk, we try to give you one idea to build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week, we will follow up on Rich Bernstein's suggestion to own an underowned and occasionally vilified inflation beneficiary, namely energy, and in particular, some fossil fuel companies. So this week's action point is own an energy ETF. Bernstein can't recommend any specific ones, but Morningstar can and does. And here are two of their top recommendations, both with extremely low fees and dividend yields above 3%. One of the largest and oldest is the Energy Select Spider ETF, symbol XLE. Rated five-star silver, it invests in companies in the S&P 500 energy sector, so it's 21 of the oil, gas, and energy equipment giants, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, EOG Resources, ConocoPhillips, and Schlumberger. Another is Vanguard Energy ETF, symbol VDE rated four-star gold, which is based on a broader energy index that includes over 100 large, mid, and small-cap energy companies. It, too, is dominated by the majors, but owns smaller companies as well. Like it or not, fossil fuels power the economy. We need them for every aspect of our lives, and publicly traded energy companies in this country are among the cleanest in the world. They also offer portfolio diversification, earnings growth, and dividend income. Next week, the competitive edge of sustainable bond investing with Steve Liberator, portfolio manager of top-ranked TIAA CREF Core Impact Bond Fund. In this week's extra feature, Rich Bernstein explains how to be a clear-eyed investor in the face of pessimism and evil. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.